Hello and welcome to the Motor City Hoops podcast. If you are new to the Motor City Hoops podcast, I'm your host, Bryce Simon, a former D1 Hooper, current teacher, coach, husband, father of three amazing kids, and contributor at Detroit Bad Boys of SB Nation. As always, before I introduce the absolutely incredible guests we have for you today, I want to remind you to check out a few things after you listen to this episode. Jared Greenberg from NBA on TNT and NBA TV joined us for episode 83 in what was an awesome episode getting his outside perspective on the Jeremy Grant trade, Dwayne Casey, Troy Weaver, and the entire organization. It's been a few days now, but I also dropped a Trey Lyles Small Ball 5 article on Detroit Bad Boys that I'd love for you to check out as well. Please give us a follow on Twitter at Motor City Hoops and subscribe to the YouTube channel so you never miss out on any content. My interview with Neil Rule and Darren McCarty of Big D Energy on Woodward Sports Network can be found on that Motor City Hoops YouTube channel. But let's get to our guest today, a University of Michigan alum and Detroit Pistons fan, a fellow husband and a father of two, and a four-time Olympian with one bronze medal, one silver medal in the 1500 meter, Nick Willis. Nick, welcome to the Motor City Hoops podcast and thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on here. It's a great pleasure to be talking Pistons. Um, We are so excited. Um, Wes and I, the producer, have been talking about this for weeks now. Whenever we got you, you know, that we knew we were going to get you on and we've just been waiting for this day. So on today's episode, we'll continue talking about the possible Jeremy Grant trade in the situation and what Nick thinks about that. We'll also get his thoughts on Cade Cunningham, Beef Stew's offensive game, and which player or players have been surprised the most this season. I also want to take a chance to get his fandom perspective on Coach Casey and Troy Weaver. But we didn't bring a former Olympic athlete on the podcast to just talk about the Pistons. We'll also talk to Nick about his long and decorated career, overcoming injuries, being a flag bearer for his home country of New Zealand, and much, much more. A quick note before we get started, we did record this uh, before Sunday night's game versus the Nuggets. So if anything happens in that or on Monday, I'll catch you back up on Tuesday night's instant recap episode after the second game versus Denver. But let's get right into this, Nick. Where are you at with the possibility of trading Jeremy Grant? Are you on board with that? Does it depend on who they get in return? What do you think about all these trade rumors around Jeremy Grant? Yeah, I have a couple of different thoughts. Um, I guess my first question is, how much is Troy Weaver willing to risk like his reputation of, I know that Grant and Plumlee willingly signed with us and that's a pretty big deal. We're a minor market team and it's hard to get guys to actually sign to Detroit. So it was really cool for them to actually be willing to come to the Pistons. So I, I would want to have their green light. And so I'd be curious, did Plumlee give the green light to be traded? I'm assuming so when he went to, um, out to Charlotte and would Grant give his blessing before we traded him as well? I think that's really important um, to keep our reputation of Troy Weaver as the new representative of, of the Pistons, um, that we're not just someone who just gets the best deal just for our benefit. Um, that might limit our ability to get people in the future with our, we're going to have a lot of money left over in the salary cap the next couple of years. So we want to be able to utilize that, right? I guess secondly, um, I think my priority from a personal standpoint is I love Jeremy Grant and I'd I, I'd love to see him succeed with the Pistons, but if he's going to want to continue to be the number one option and there's a lot of stopping, there's not much flow in the offense, then I think trading would be best. But if he was willing to play a little bit more like what everyone envies, right, the Golden State Warriors, there's so much good ball movement. If he is willing to do that more often and pass and pass and pass and he then take the shots that are given to him, um, I'd say it'd be best if we could actually keep him. Anything we get in return is unlikely to ever be as good as what he could be for us anyway. 
But if he wants to be the number one guy, then yeah, I think the Bulls is probably my my favorite return package from everything that I've seen proposed um, on Twitter. Okay, so we'll we'll come back to that second part. And you just mentioned the Bulls, which is obviously the one a lot. I feel like a lot. The majority, if you went with the majority, would say the Bulls. But I want to go back to the first part because I do think this is important. And you brought up the fact that you know Jeremy Grant willingly came to Detroit, and we all know why. We it's been outlined. It's been articles. And I, and I get it. I, I just want to ask your, your opinion, if you're willing to give it. Do you think Jeremy Grant is okay with being traded? I'm not saying like has asked to be traded or anything like that, but do you think he is given his blessing? And do you think it is partly because Cade came to town? And I'm not saying this in a negative way, but like things changed when Cade um, was drafted number one overall. Do you think like from your perspective as a fan that watches the game, follows the team, do you think that that could be why? I don't think it's because of Cade. I just think maybe last year's experience when they were having to fake leg contusions and all this different stuff to help us think. Um, I think he wants to be on a, in a winning situation, although he chose to leave Denver, which was one. I think um, he sort of had his chance to, to prove his value as a more focal point of the offense. And so now he's ready to get... Um, another chance and a more competitive situation, but not just be thrown over into the corner like he was in Denver. So yeah, my my guess is that he has given the green light, and otherwise we wouldn't be having these discussions. From everything I've read about Troy Reaver, he's trying to earn trust and respect from his players, and um, I would hope that he would continue to keep that sort of as a number one priority. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up the word reputation. I had actually written in my notes as you were talking about it, like right before you said it. And I think that's huge because I do think that's important. As you said, it's not like the Pistons right now. Now, I think with Cade, as Troy Weaver builds this culture and reputation, maybe free agents will be more inclined to come play for the Pistons. But I think it's very important to treat these players the right way and not always just as assets. I've talked about that a lot with how I felt like why Derrick Rose ended up with the Knicks um, because I think they tried to give you know him what he wanted. But let's go to the actual trade. So you brought up the Bulls. That That's absolutely the one you like the most, Nick, in terms of I'm assuming the Patrick Williams in return is what you were you would like with that one. Are there any other ones that you have a strong feeling one way or the other? Like you've seen it like, man, I would love that return or like, no, 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 let's stay away from that. Uh, also with the Hawks getting John Collins, it'd be great to have a, a big guy in there that we can just throw lobs up to. Um, there was a, a tweet that was shared out the other day about Darius Garland just throwing it up there. He didn't even have to even look for the pass. And then um, their center went up and just grabbed it and he didn't even have to work. I think he got 16 assists that day Garland did. So Cade just doesn't have that outlet right now when he plays the pick and roll. So it'd be awesome for the Pistons to have a lob thread in there. So the Hawks is probably one of the better options for that. I guess if we could trade for Turner with the paces, but he's got a lot of injury um, history. So that's a bit risky with that. So real quick, before we go into Cade, because we've mentioned him a couple of times and I absolutely want to get your thoughts on Cade. What about the Lakers one? I have to, I have to ask you about Lakers because that's one most fans don't like. Do you have any interest? Like, do you, are you the same as other Pistons fans? Like no interest in Taylor Horton Tucker and none in a 2027 first round pick. Are you out on the Lakers or, or does that actually intrigue you just a little bit? I will say this. Um, the only real Lakers game I saw this year was when THT looked pretty good. I think it was early in the season, mate. I can't even remember if it was a preseason. He looked nice. But then I've been reading all of the, everyone talking about it. But overall, I just really despise the Lakers, um, and I would never want to help them do well. Um, it'd be sort of like the Pau Gasol trade all over again, right? 
Um, when I played in middle school, all of the New Zealand kids would assume NBA teams. And so the Lakers were our foes. So I've hated them ever since then. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I'm right there with you. So let's move into Cade Cunningham. Number one pick, face of the franchise. Um, I think the listeners know how I feel about Cade Cunningham and what we've seen. I, I just want to get your thoughts, Nick. You know, like I, I love this having just a, a fan on. Uh, have you thought he was as advertised? You know, I want you to be completely fair. Like, you know, do you? Has everything been as good as you thought? Have there been some things you'd like to see different or better from him? What have you thought about Cade Cunningham? Yeah, I really didn't watch him at all in college. So um, it's been quite interesting to learn as we go. I took my son to his opening game. Um, I think we played the Magic that day. That wasn't a great day, but I said, son, we're going to say that we got to see Cunningham's first ever NBA game. So that was really cool. And my son's a big fan as well. Um what surprised me most is his ability to be patient and the key. I think that's um, that's a real skill that guards, not a lot of them have, just to get into the paint and then not rush things once he's in there. I remember Rod Strickland was a guy who used to do that all the time, and I would marveled at his ability to just be patient in there. And so Cade sort of has that poise. Um, it's been nice seeing him not um, pick up his dribble as quickly as possible. He was doing that and turning up, turning it over a lot as he didn't have many outlets, but now he's sort of doing some reverses. As George Blaha says, a reverser off the glass, he'll use the the, the hoop as a shield from getting blocked. Um, I think he learned that after he got um, blocked by Anthony Davis three times in a row in that one game. Um, but yeah, I'm a little bit surprised his pull-up jumpers from behind three haven't been... Um, as advertised yet, but I think that's obviously going to come. But when he's a, a catch-and-shoot three-pointer, he's pretty deadly. So, yeah, we're having a lot of fun cheering him on. And I turned the game off the second that he was um, ejected from that game most recently. So I'll be honest, he's the primary and pretty much the only reason why I watch games this season. So real quick, you, you brought up you had taken your son. What, how old is your son? He's eight and a half. Yeah, he's a, he's a big um, Pistons fan, so I'm, I'm glad that I've been able to get that into his veins. <laughs> That's awesome. So, does he watch? Like when you're watching at home, does he watch with you? Ask questions, follow the team. Is he pretty into it? Oh, he knows every single element to the game, um, and he plays in his basement every day, and he pretends to be the, the different players on the the hoop hanging over the the door, sort of stuff as well. That is awesome. That's really cool. I want to stay with Kate because you had a really, really interesting tweet. And we're going to we're going to reference back to this tweet a few different times as we work through the players. But on Kate specifically, and you brought up the the like step behind threes. And I think part of that is due to his legs. And I think partially because his conditioning. And so you had a tweet about his conditioning. And so I don't want to steal your thunder, but can you just talk to what you've seen in terms of that? And kind of the idea you threw out on Twitter to help him with that maybe this offseason. Well, I will say I, I spoke a little negatively, negatively about his conditioning. And obviously he missed preseason and training camp and stuff. But it has seemed like he's been able to be a little less gassed more recently. And I noticed the other night they brought him in maybe with 11 minutes to go in the last quarter. But that's been a real challenge for us as they're keeping our starters on the bench and not bringing them in until seven or eight minutes to go and then the game's already out of reach um with the the reserves not doing their part at the end of the third and the start of the fourth so like if curry if all of these other guys are on the court we should have our top guys in the court we shouldn't be worrying about their endurance and as a track and field athlete we go up to altitude camps two or three times a year we spend four weeks up there it gets your red blood cell count up you can process oxygen a lot more efficiently and um, just be a lot 
fitter. And I've always wondered why other um, sports and basketballs, my my other love, right? Why basketball players haven't utilized um, this concept of altitude training more? I know Gilbert Arenas back in the day fitted his house out, so it was like a, an altitude house. Um, but I think going up for just four week stints, and if he did that in the off season for a couple of stints, go up to one of the ski resorts that has a basketball um, gym, like he could still have that luxurious life that those guys are looking in the off season. Um, I know. I think it'd be a good way to get a, a leg up heading into next um, preseason. No, I love the idea. And like I say, we'll get to some of the other things you threw out about a few of the other players in just a second. But one more thing here with Cade Cunningham, and it has to do with this is, I think part of it is he's trying to do so much. He's handling the ball. He's scoring the ball. We're asking him to defend and rebound. And so Coach Casey had a quote, um, or it was reported by one of the beat writers. They tweeted out that Casey said they'd like to find some opportunities for him to play off the ball a little bit more. Do you see that? I mean, do you think that would help him? I personally do. Playing off the ball would take a little bit of that pressure off. Or are you worried about him playing off the ball then would hurt like how much he touches? You know, he'd go multiple possessions without getting touches in his shots. Do you like the idea of Kate playing off the ball? And is there anybody you like to play on the ball a little bit more? Well, I guess firstly, I think playing off the ball doesn't necessarily mean you get less shots. Um, I think because he's such a selfless and team player, he probably has it in his back of his mind every time he brings the ball up the court that he's got to look for the pass first. And sometimes they're just little offloads that he's giving to somebody and then it swings around and never makes his way back to him. Whereas if he plays off the ball more, off the ball more, like Allen Iverson used to, right? He, he never brought the ball up, but he got off 35 shots a game. Um, Cade can still swing around and I always I mean I grew up watching uh, um, going to work Pistons that's how I fell in love with the team when I first came to Detroit um, for school and Rip Hamilton used to run around a couple of screens pull up for a mid-range jumper and he was money from there I, I saw him get 44 points against LeBron his rookie year and I think Cade's got that mid-range game that we should be running more plays for him that way as well and that's how Cade probably saw that when he was guarding Curry the other night Curry was playing off the ball a ton of times. And likewise, Grant can play that same um, role that they're – sorry, my, my mind's blanking me. Who's their big-time um, trade that they got from Minnesota the other year? And he's he's going off for the Golden State Warriors now. Oh, they're Andrew going, Wiggins? Andrew Wiggins from Canada, yeah. So Grant could be the Wiggins that the Pistons need. Wiggins used to be more of a ball hog, but now he's – playing within their offense and having more success than ever. And so that would be, if I agree, I, I am completely fine with Cade playing off ball in some of the roles you're talking about. And like you say, just because he's playing off ball doesn't mean he's not going to get touches and he's not going to get shots. And that would obviously, I think, put the ball in Killian Hayes' hands. And I know he's a hot topic right now. Um, fans are starting to be a little bit polarizing on him. Where do you stand on Killian Hayes? And we'll talk about your tweet or kind of the offseason idea you had for him, which I love as well. I, I would just like to see what we have from Killian. And I know the injuries have, have taken from that at times. But do you still have any hope in Killian Hayes thinking he can be a part of this, uh, this organization long term? Well, what I've read is that Killian is a pick-and-roll guy. That's where his mastery w will end up being, um, and it probably already is if he has one. Um, and we don't have that big guy to, to play the pick-and-roll properly, and so I think a lot of his problems will be solved. When he has to go up for layups, he's coming really wide at it because he doesn't want to create contact when he goes up to, the, to get a shot off. 
Cade's a little bit more willing to create contact or go behind his back and go to the other hand. Killian's pretty much stuck on that left hand. But if he has a, a lob threat there or someone that keeps the help defense off of him, he's going to have a much easier drive to the basket. So he'll get um, – he's got the length. Hey, he even showed he's got hops the other day. he get up for a couple of dunks. Yes, he did. So, yeah, I think we need to be able to see how he goes in an offense that's more structured for the pick and roll. Um, I love Beef Stew, but he's going to have to go to the bench if we can bring in a guy that can really assist with Killian and Cade. I think Cade should still – have the ball as uh, another um, point guard option, but just not be the primary one. And we'll talk about Beef Stew in just a second, but I want to ask you real quick, because in that tweet, you said that you'd like to see Killian work with Tony Parker in the offseason. What was it specifically about Tony Parker's game that you think Killian Hayes could benefit from learning from? I mean, I, I've i watched Tony play in person a handful of times, and it's just... I'm in awe every single time this little guy can get into the paint and he, he just gets off those little floaters, that sort of jump stop, one-hand shots more so than floaters in many ways. Um, Killian and a lot of our guys, Josh Jackson and Cade, sometimes is at fault of this as well. They seem to sort of push from their palm and do a line drive with their shots and there's a lot of force hitting that back rim or backboard and there's no chance. But if he can just get use the fingertips a little bit more and get a little bit more of sort of touch on his shots I think um and being Tony Parker's French right and he was the master at the the um the floater who better to teach Killian than him no I love it I I really like some of these ideas and we'll get to the other two in just a second but you've brought up the big guy situation a couple times not having that pick and roll threat and specifically beef stew and and I think everybody likes Isaiah Stewart they love the energy he fits Detroit and what the city stands for, and all of that perfectly. He's a hard worker. He doesn't back down. I never want this to sound like an overwhelming negative about Isaiah Stewart, but if we're really judging him as what he is on the court, especially on the offensive end, there's some things that need to get better. What do you see in his game that – let's just talk about his offensive game, Nick. You know, Do you have more hope in him? What do you think he needs to get better at? What do you think he can get better at to really help this team moving forward? Well, I'm not sure if his physical limitations will allow him to get much better on the pick and roll. hes I don't know if it's because he's got little hands, but a lot of the time when Cade doesn't throw a lob up because Stu doesn't have the same hops that would be necessary to get up there, he'll do a bounce pass, and a lot of the time that will get lost anyway. He's got pretty slippery hands on those sort of short passes. So he have to become a pick-and-pop guy, and that means getting much better from deep um, as, as a way to stay as a threat on offense and keep the defense from clogging the lane. Um, so he showed in college he's got a turnaround jump shot. He's got decent free throws stroke. So it's there if he can have the confidence, but he definitely seems to have regressed on his, his long-range shot this year, and I'm, I'm guessing that's more psychological than physical, so I don't know what's being told to him from the bench. But Casey says he always gives green light to his players. I remember Andre Drummond was in that predicament as well, but um, Stu definitely has the mechanics to be a better shooter than Andre ever was. So you brought up Coach Casey a couple times here. We've talked about the pick and roll, which I think a lot of fans have issues that they don't run it as much as they should, which like you brought up though, whenever you don't have the big guy to do it, then it's kind of hard to rely on it too much. You brought up the subbing, waiting too long to sub into the fourth quarters. I agree with that as well. I think the staggering could be better. What's your overall thoughts on Coach Casey? Just as a fan 
um, I'm really interested to get your perspective, you know, because we have the beat writers on, we have guys from around the NBA and they speak very highly of Coach Casey. And I think they do honestly, like I, I think they're being genuine when they talk about him. He sounds like a great man that develops professionals, but just as a fan, what, what do you see when you're watching the X's and O's and the interactions and how the game flows? I mean, firstly, I, I love the NBA more than any other sport because you get to see everything up close and you get to learn the different personalities and the way players interact with each other in their competition. Um, and that's why I have a lot of respect and I admire Coach Casey because he garners the respect of all of his players. And so I don't know what goes on behind the locker room or how he handles those relationships. But, um, yeah, I I have a huge amount of respect for him. And it shows in no better way than the fact that we always beat the Raptors whenever we play them because the players step up because they want to get his back, right? And um, I wish that happened more often. Is that because they're getting his back more or because he knows Nick Nurse's his, his faults and can sort of sneak through that? So that's satisfying. But, um, but yeah, I... I the rotations obviously bother a lot of people, but I've always wondered why they have to almost be premeditated every time. Why can't there be some audibles called for when you're going to bring different players in? Maybe it's because we don't have enough stars yet to be guaranteed minutes, so he's got to be like I am when I'm coaching my third-grade son's team. You're just got to be equitable with those the distribution of minutes. Um, but that's probably the most frustrating part of it is – we're sort of locked in that we bring in our subs and the other team will always keep one or two really good players out on the court at any given time. And Corey Joseph and Trey Lyles have their moments, but like if they're not on, then they're not productive out there. It's, it's been better of late though. Uh, no, I mean, to me, it always comes back to the staggering of minutes. Like you should always have, I mean, and, and here it's been hard because of the injuries and COVID and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. Like, like just, you got to pick your three best players. And one of those three best players has to be on the floor at all times. Whoever those three guys are, you know, for a while it was like Sadiq, Kami, and you know, it might've been Trey Lyles whenever everybody was in health and safety, pro- safety protocols, you know, now it's Cade, Sadiq and, and I don't even know, but you got to keep one of those three guys on whoever you decide are your three best players. But I want to ask, you just brought up coaching your third grade team. My, my son's a first grader. We didn't play games this year. We just practiced. And man, it tested my patience. I coach high school kids and they test my patience. But man, it was tough. What, what is it like for you as we, we will come back to the Pistons for the listeners, but just a little sidebar here. What's it like coaching your third grade son's team and, and all of those kids? Well, I guess I'll be honest. I have learned that I know nothing about um, the fundamentals of basketball and all <laughs> of the grade stuff. All of my knowledge of basketball is just from watching every Pistons game for the last 15 years. Um, but the NBA coaching and strategy doesn't translate to kids' basketball. I'm very quickly learning. So, yeah, our, our team was getting crushed the other day when we were getting half-court pressed and we couldn't get it over the halfway line. So I spent a couple of days on YouTube learning how to beat the press. Um, but, no, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's 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 good that my son has a love for the sport as well um so i get to to share that experience with him no that's awesome and it's funny you brought that up because i'm the same way like you watch these nba games i i played division one basketball obviously and you know when i first started coaching i tried to take what i did in college and bring it to this high school level and it's a very small high school you know a couple hundred kids is all and it's like wow this is way too much i gotta throw all this stuff out the book um in terms of some of the x's and o's and stuff not everything you know like the culture building and some of that stuff can still translate but yeah. um, 
Very interesting that you brought that up. Let's trans- transition back into the Pistons. And I want to ask you about Troy Weaver and just this rebuild, this restoration as a whole. As a, Again, as a fan, how encouraged are you? What's your level of trust or belief in Troy Weaver? And has it started to waver at all? You know, it seemed like early on he could do no wrong. Everybody was bought in 10 out of 10. Are you still there? Were you ever there? Where are you at overall with restoration? If anything, my trust in him has grown because – he hasn't been trigger happy in this most recent trade period. Um, obviously, he, he seemed to be the most active guy in the offseason, and everyone just assumed that he just he he gets impatient and wants to to make some action. But it was obviously a plan that he has in place, and he's sticking to it. And he's he's not just going to make a trade now just um, because he feels like he has to because the team's not acting. Um, I feel like there is a three year plan in there, and I'm. It was hard as a fan to watch this year be a struggle, but obviously he intentionally didn't bring in some guys that we needed um, to allow our guys who will eventually move to the bench to still get um, some experience on the court. What did you, were you disappointed at all that the Bull Bull trade fell through? Where were you at with that? I know some fans got really excited. It it was a big name, if nothing else, um, because that was a move that Weaver finally made and I do agree with you you know it looked like he was going to come in and just be a gunslinger you know willing and dealing all the time but I think he just wanted to settle into his roster with his guys and I'm not saying he'll stop making moves but I think we'll see him be a, a little bit more deliberate but were you disappointed with Bull Bull the the physical not passing through or um, you were kind of whatever with that I mean sure anytime a trade happens or a new signing you get excited and the dopamine kicks in and you read all the tweets about it but um, no, I think ultimately it's, it's, I think, was it, who were the Pistons playing when Rodney McCruder got called out? Was it the Warriors when Clay Thompson was giving him a hard time last year? Yes, yes. Um, and so, yeah, I've always, I've always had a respect for McCruder. And it's cool that after all of this has happened, he's come back and he's lit it up the last few games. So, um, yeah, I, I always like cheering for the little guy. I know George Blaha is a big fan of his as well. No, well, yeah, what's Blaha say? He's a pro's pro. I mean, like, but he really is, and he has been playing well, and it's, you know, everybody's tweeting about it now, like, man, Bull Bull wasn't enough of a return for Roddy Magruder. You know, we should, we should get more. Um, so it will be interesting to see how that plays out the rest of the season, if he actually ends up getting moved before the deadline or not. But I want to ask just a couple more questions, and then we are going to move into your running career. But which player has surprised you the most this year, Nick? I mean, you know, we like to keep it mostly positive on Motor City Hoops, but if there's someone that maybe you had higher expectations for that hasn't lived up to them, that's okay. We, we talk about those things as well. So it, it can be positive and or negative. Who surprised you the most? Um, obviously, in the first half of the season, Sadiq Bey was really struggling, and you're like, "Oh gosh, we got no one come out of those three signings that we had that are really showing their their worth." But um, he's really turned it around. Um, my son's favorite player on the team is Hamadou Diallo. Anytime someone can dunk it, your kids are going to get excited, right? So that's been my biggest surprise and a, and a positive. Um, I would be really curious, and I'm not a basketball expert at all. If he's got such good hops and he's he's pretty tall, I think he's six seven or six eight. Could you run the pick and roll with him instead of Stu because he can actually get up there for the lobs, or does it not work out there if you're not if you don't have the the body size to to be in the paint? Nick, you're speaking straight to my heart, my man. Like I love this because I've brought this up before that I, I do think you two can't. And he's not quite as tall as what I thought. I actually think he's only like six six, um, but he's so explosive. He's so athletic. Like I just think you can. 
Now there is a little bit of an art to it. And like, you have to have a feel. And if it's not natural, it may take a little time, but between that and the dunker spot, which is right there on the baseline, right off, you know, just catching the lobs whenever people drive. I do think he could be successful in those situations. And I would love to see the Pistons use him more like that. So I love that you brought it up because that's exactly how I feel about him as well. Because when he's on the three point line, as we know, he's not a great shooter. Sometimes he can take an advantage of it by driving it at the closeout, but I would love to see him used in those situations just a little bit more. Could it be like a skinny version of a Murray Stoudemire or something? Yeah, no, I love it. I, I think it's a great idea. I would love to see them try to use him in that way and, and find out. Um, because I think in the small sample size, I think I've asked Koo from Locked On about this. I think in the small sample size, he's actually been decent at it. Now, the issue would be like in the short roll, you know, how good is his decision making going to be? But just in terms of catching lobs, getting offensive rebounds, you know, that type of stuff, I would, I would have to think he would be pretty good at it. So, and I love, I, I know what you're talking about with your little kid, you know, loving, you know, the, anybody who can really elevate and dunk. And I'm kind of interested to see if we see him in the dunk contest this year, but I want to go back to the tweet you sent out. I'm, I'm we're asking about one more and you talked about Luca Garza. Um, so speak just a little bit to, to what you've seen and liked or not liked from Luca Garza. And then you brought up sending him back to the University of Iowa to work out with a different program that you think could help him. So speak to that as well. Well, everyone talked about in the offseason, Luca's not going to be as slow because he's lost a bunch of weight so he can move quicker laterally. I, I don't know a lot about lateral quickness. I'm a, a runner, so you, it's a linear motion. But um, I am friends with the head track and field coach at the University of Iowa, Joey Woody. He was a 400-meter hurdle Olympian. And I manage um, some elite athletes for the brand that I work with, Tracksmith. And some of them are uh, um, Olympic trials-level hurdlers, 100-meter hurdlers, 110-meter hurdlers. So they're fast, dynamic. They have to be agile, all that sort of stuff. So if Garza went to the University of Iowa, why shouldn't he go back there in the summer and just work with some track coaches to get his quicks going? He looks like he's stuck in quicksand when he's running back on defense. His his defense hasn't looked hor- horrendous, but it's like getting back to get back on D on time. It's painful to watch on television. So it, it hopefully let him have a little less contact time on the ground as he's um, trudging his way back down the court. But I would I'm curious if you ran some tests with him and Kelly Olenek um, for some agility tests because Kelly doesn't look much faster. He just knows how to position himself and has a li- little bit more awareness. So maybe that will slowly come with Gaza in the next couple of years. No, I agree 100%, Nick. I, I don't think Kelly Olenek is a guy that moves extremely well. I think he moves better than Luca, but he's very, very sound positionally. He anticipates, he knows. And that's, I think maybe that could be the bigger issue with Luca on the defensive end, Nick, is – I don't think Luca, and he's maybe he's just not there yet. I, I didn't watch his film in college, so he may have been better in college in terms of awareness and positioning. But maybe the NBA game's just too fast for him right now, and that's why. But if he got better at that, I think he could inch a little bit closer to being a neutral defender, and then that gives a chance for his offensive game to really shine. But I just I kept referencing those tweets because when you tweeted that out, I loved it. Some of those I don't. I guess they were outside the box. They weren't necessarily things that I had seen other people bring up, but they were all issues I think definitely needed to be addressed for some of these guys in the offseason. So I thought those were really good. Um, And as we talked a little bit about running here, let's transition to your career. Obviously a very decorated runner, silver in Beijing, bronze in Rio in the Olympics, a bronze in the 2016 World Indoors, a gold and two bronze in the Commonwealth Games, a silver in a World Cup, and you're the oldest man to win an Olympic medal in the 1500 meter. 
I just want to ask you first, Nick, like, what is it like representing your country at the Olympics? Like how, what is that stage like? Can you, I'm sure it's hard to put into words, but can you describe it for our listeners? Yeah, I guess the best way to describe it is when I, um, when I managed to win my first ever Olympic medal and they, they give you the opportunity to do a, a celebration lap. The winner does a victory lap, but even the medalists run around the track and it's, it's like my little slice of heaven, right? Everyone from the whole world is watching. Everyone in the stands is uh, waving their flags from every different tribe around the world. Um, and it's it's that chance to be representing this whole um, globe that we're a part of. And that was unbelievable. And I just broke down in tears and couldn't believe that this little kid from my little corner of New Zealand had that privileged opportunity. And But that it is addictive. Like you want to experience and say, have have the opportunity to savor that type of moment again. And it's very fleeting. Um, and it took me another eight years to have that um, chance to do another celebration lap. So yeah, it, it's cool to know that I've always been a fan of sports before I became um, an athlete that could, someone could be a fan of, I suppose. So it's, it's really um, affirming to know that there's another little kid like I was once watching the Olympics on TV when I was eight years old at two in the morning um, that there was an, another kid or several of them back in New Zealand that might have gained inspiration from what I was doing. So that, that's a really big honor. Um, and now I'm 38 years of age and ending the sort of the twilight of my career. I'm so like the Vince Carter of, not the Vince <laughs> Carter dunking, but Vince Carter like and longevity of, of my sport. Um, and it's interesting. I get to sort of the people reaching out to me now to say that I'm inspiring them. They're not the younger generation. It's the older generation, people that, used to be athletes then they life got in the way and they got out of shape and they see me still going at it so they're like man you've inspired me to go to the store and get another pair of sneakers and get back at it again so that that's really cool as well so uh, we're going to get back to the olympics because i do want to ask some more specific questions but you brought that up so we have to go into this you've run a sub four minute mile in 19 consecutive years nick like what what is driving you what is the motivation to continue to do this every single year, year after year? And I believe you missed your last attempt for this year. You ran on New Year's Eve. Is that correct? At midnight? I, I did it on the first. Um, I did it on the stroke of midnight. So it was the first possible opportunity. It was more of a marketing gimmick, to be honest. Okay. So I've, I've got another attempt coming up in New York City this coming weekend. Um so I've got the rest of the year to keep that streak alive. But you're going back to your question of what what keeps motivating me. Obviously, when I was younger, I was driven. I wanted to achieve. I wanted to prove my doubters, all of that sort of stuff, make a name for myself and open doors and opportunities, the the fame and the fortune that kids aspire to becoming professional athletes, right? Um, but as I've already sort of reached most of my goals, I question that myself. Why am I still doing this? And I think deep down it comes down to it as – it feels amazing being really fit, um, not just really fit in terms of um, being able to pump blood around your body and not getting tired and my resting heart rate's crazy low, all of that sort of stuff, but being able to move around and not feel any aches or pains or stiffness. Um, to be a world-class runner, you've got to really look after your body, and I, I love that feeling. Um, and I know that the second that I sort of stop setting goals for myself, I'm just, my body's going to go to crap, go to the crappers and I'm not going to ever stretch again. I'm never going to eat healthy again. So it's the fear of what I might become if I let go of this. So it's sort of, um, 
that element knowing that um father time will catch up to me a lot quicker so it's motivating me now to enjoy a quality of life as i get older i love it so i want to go back also you, you kind of mentioned your childhood and watching the olympics and then in high school like what other high school sports did you play or participate in um was it just running when did this love start and we're like, I, I know you play basketball now. Like, you know, we 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 kind of scheduled this recording because I know you have a basketball game on. It'll be last night, Monday night, when this actually drops. But what what did you do in high school? Were you a multi sport athlete, or did you fall in love with running really early and kind of focus on that? Yeah, in middle school, I played every possible sport there was, from golf to tennis to basketball to track to table tennis. Um, rugby was my other love in New Zealand. Everyone plays rugby like everyone plays baseball here um, in America. Um, but basketball was probably my favorite sport. Um, and then running and rugby were the sports that I were the best at. Um, and then when I had to, when I got to high school, all of my peers they grew, and I stayed like I looked like an eleven-year-old kid through most of high school. Um, so basketball no longer became an option for me as I slowly couldn't make teams. So I was like the water boy equivalent sort of stuff. So really the only things left for me um, were running. And But I didn't want to just do running because that was sort of a boring sport. Um, I was just good at it. But skateboarding was what I sort of put all my passion into in high school. Um, so I skated like six or seven hours a day every day. And running was always there. But um Every, all of the other sports fell to the wayside because I was this little kid. And then as I grew, my suddenly my running took off and more opportunities. So my senior year in high school, I dropped my mile time by about 30 seconds from 4.31 to 4.01. Um, and that basically op- offered the opportunity for me to go to a college in America. And I was like, yep, see you in New Zealand. It's time to go see the, the big, um, the, the rest of the world and see what that's like. And so running became a vehicle for me to, to live out a lot of my my dreams and um once that continued to advance and i became a professional athlete um over the years i loved it of course but as i was 10 15 years into my professional career there were all of these things in my life that i had not been able to do again and i did i had a yearning to get back into them now that i'm actually i'm six foot one i'm i'm a decent sized guy and i can maybe do them again so it's exciting now that i'm sort of running is not as much of a priority anymore. I get to play in an adult rec league in, in Southeast Michigan and maybe I'll get to play rugby again one day and I'm back on my skateboard and having a bit of fun as well. It's, it's a bit of a bit of a midlife crisis as well. Probably. <laughs> real, real quick, what's your game on the basketball court, Nick? Like, are you a shooter? You're a driver? Like what, what, what's your game? I think I'm a sixth man point guard. <laughs> okay. Cause I, I like to have the ball in my hands and I like to pull up from deep, um, yeah, so I, I that that would be my my wannabe game. If I'm if I'm with the starters, then I'll just put myself in the corner and I'll just run all over the court to try and get everyone tired and maybe. Um, but I, I like to to be the trailer for pull up shots like Rashid Wallace used to do. Okay. Um, or yeah, but I just enjoy yapping. It's it's fun. Like when you're running, you can't ever talk in a race so in, in basketball I can't shut up um, it's sort of it's funny how that's come out of me the lot now that I've started playing again so when you say yapping do you mean like just kind of talking casually or you're like trash talking no it's not trash well it might be trash talking because I'm like 
man, you let me score over you. I'm like a <laughs> skinny dude. But I'll be like really congratulatory to all the other players as well. Like people take it really seriously. They've got nothing else going on in their lives. I'm just having fun out there. Do some runners trash talk? Like are you running around the track at the Olympics? And obviously maybe you didn't, but are other guys, like is there some of those games being played, like some some talk trying to get in each other's heads ever? By and large, it's um, – yeah, it's pretty cordial. But the, what's unique about our sport is that we go into the equivalent of a locker room for the 25 minutes before the race happens and you're in there with your competitors. Whereas in any other sport, you're with your own team in a separate locker room. You don't actually have to be on the arena together until the competition starts. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of sort of like intense moments and it's mostly quiet. And so some guys might say a few under-the-cuff things it's it's never rude, but it's like they're trying to like bestow their confidence upon you in, in that moment. Um, or good luck, old man. They might say that sort of thing to me now as a little bit of a joke. So I want to ask back to the Olympics. So like take us back to your first Olympic run. How did that stage or, or did that stage affect your performance? And then how did that change as you move through it? Like, did you learn things from it? Did, did it, or were you ready to go from the beginning? Can you just walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. My first Olympic games, I was a sophomore at Michigan. So I was wow. 21. I was wide eyed and um, I was like, this is awesome. I'm with all of my heroes. And so I remember asking for autographs of my competitors. They were the guys that I'd been looking up to the last 10 years. Um, I was asking for their autographs before the race. So they're like, who's this kid? And then I managed to to beat some of them as well. So that was cool. So, but I was probably a little too energetic. I was that that kid there that was just really excitable. Um, but we, what how that did me in, it was like playing a playoff series because you have to run a heat, a semifinal, and a final over a space of five days. And it's about conserving your emotions so that you can get quality sleep between the rounds so that your body recovers. But after the first race happened, I was so hyped and I was so excited. I never really slept again. You're like just like lying in bed wide awake all night for the next couple of nights because um, the hype of the Olympics got the better of me. And so my how I learned that in the future when I got to my next Olympics, I ran the first round and didn't treat it like anything other than like a training run. And I just walked off the track, um, went back to my room and never like allowed those emotions to sort of take over. And I conserved all of those for the final the one that mattered the most i think the best way to like compare that to basketball is how lebron just cruises through the regular season right and if if the lakers are really struggling he'll like step it up for a month to get them back into a decent record but he doesn't give a shit about the um the regular season at all and it's it's all that matters is the playoffs so that's how i approached the early rounds of a, of an olympics and um, but I, yeah, I love the limelight and at the Olympics. It sort of seemed to get the best out of me and all of my best races have come in the biggest moments. Um, otherwise, I don't seem to get that excitable enough um, or I'm not disciplined enough in the months leading into it is probably the bigger issue. But the Olympics makes me eat healthy and all of the other little things, which sometimes I can be a little um, lazy on. Man, it just listening to you, to, like all I can think about is the mental side of what you and all runners go through. And I know all professional athletes, all athletes in general, but, you know, I think sometimes people think, you know, it's just about running and running a lot of miles and whatever else. But, you know, talking about your body, what you eat, how much sleep you get, but then the mental side and controlling your emotions. It's just incredible to think about all this stuff that had to go into it. And so I want to ask you, you dealt with some injuries in, in your career. What was it like 
having to go through that? What was the biggest struggle? What, what kind of mental toughness did it take to push through those and get back to the level you eventually got back to? Yeah, it's really hard. Um, the biggest worry, like I had four pretty serious surgeries is like, is this the end? Is that, is that all she wrote? And like, do I need to look for another job now? Cause my professional career is over and I wasn't making NBA money. So like, it's like these legitimate concerns of like, do I need to start finding alternative methods to pay the bills? Um, and so that is the temptation, but, um, I've been fortunate to have caring people around me and my wife is the number one. She's also one of my coaches that basically like, no, your job now is to get healthy. Then we'll worry about stuff after that. Um, and so having really good physical therapists and massage therapists and athletic trainers who cared about me as a person, not just as a, um, another client or customer, um, that they were in my corner and supporting me emotionally more so than physically was the most important thing. So rehabbing for three or four months on end without any sort of like confidence that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to sh um, let go of the original goals and then you shift them and you set new goals within your rehab process. And I think ultimately what I loved about running was that there were tangible goals to get, right? I wanted to improve my time. Um, and so that ultimately is who I am. I'm a goal setter and running happened to be a, a avenue that I could like practice this, this, this idea of going after goals. So I just moved my goals to being part of my rehab process. I want to beat the timeline that the doctors have said are the, the standard um, approach to doing it. And so um, I just made rehabbing my sport and challenged myself in that way. And that's what seems to be how Kobe approached his Achilles return and a lot of other um, high-level athletes that have come back from pretty significant um, injuries as well. You just you want to win in terms of like beating the, the standard rehab pr procedures. No, I love that. And, and I don't mean to like interject my own story, but that's, you know, I, I tore my ACL in college. Um, and that's kind of how the mindset I had to take as well was I'm going to be the best rehabber that, you know, American university has ever seen. And so like, it sounds like you take, took the same mindset and, and I don't know, maybe somebody listening who has a kid, or maybe we have kids listening to this podcast can, can take that and use it moving forward. I also want to talk about a, a part of your career that maybe I don't mean to like bring this up. Maybe it's a little bit sour, but in London in 2012, you placed ninth. Um, and I, I kind of asked about this before. So if these quotes are inaccurate, please correct me. But, you know, it was quoted saying that that was heartbreaking and maybe a little embarrassing. I, I want to ask more specifically to this. You said you peaked three weeks early before those Olympics. Can you explain, like, I guess I'm confused. Like, how did that happen with, with the runner? How did you peak early? Like, what was it that you went about in your training that you peaked three weeks early for that Olympics? Well, the really cool thing about my event, the 1500 meters or the mile, is it's right in that sweet spot where you have to do all of the sprint training like a sprinter would do and all of the endurance training that a marathoner would do. And then you have to bring the two together and there's like this perfect marriage and there's only really about a two or three week window where the balance of the two can line up because you can't you can't train both of those energy systems at one given time. Otherwise, it's impossible to run 100 mile weeks and do sprint training. Your just body doesn't respond to it. So you have to try and time it in the right way. And my biggest mistake, and I think this is transferable to any walk of life and competitive area sport or business or whatever as I got too fixated on my competitors because I was a silver medalist at the Beijing Olympics I thought I have to try and win at the London Olympics 
And the way that I thought I had to do that is I had to beat the best runners in the world who were from Kenya at the time. And so I was really researching and studying and watching what they were doing. And I got caught up in the times they were doing in races or workouts. And so I felt like I had to be matching them in the lead up rather than just trusting the system that worked for me and what helps me get in my best shape so I can have my best performance on the day that matters most. And that's the Olympic final. And so I got too caught up in um, studying what my competitors were doing. And so if you translate that to the NBA, like the Pistons, when they won their championship in 04, like we didn't have the best record in the season, but we trusted what worked for us. We were keeping our opponents under 70 points for a record. But the Lakers were laughing and are saying, oh, once they play their West Coast teams, like they're not going to be able to keep up with their high pace offense. But we just trusted our system. And then what do you know, like we dominate them the same way. And that's the approach that I learned after London, not to be, get caught up in what our competitors are doing. That's an amazing analogy. That was really awesome. Um, I have two more questions for you. One more about your running. And then we actually had a mailbag question. And I'm really interested to hear your answer to it. So I wanted to make sure I gave you a few minutes to get to it. But uh, you, the kick, you know, that, that's uh, for a lot of just casual fans who maybe don't watch running, you know, year round or really follow it, maybe tune into the Olympics and some of the other big races. You know, the end of the race is really what they get excited about, you know, and, you know, just listening to you today, I'm fascinated to talk to you further or maybe on another episode about some of the other intricacies, you know, watching films, studying workouts of your opponents. But that kick, what is it like in that moment, Nick? You're, you know, whatever, third place, second place, fourth, whatever it is, and you're just staring down the guy in front of you, finish line's coming up. What's going through your head in that moment? Um, what are you trying to fixate on? Generally, you're, you're either, your eyes either light up because you feel really confident or they're like, man, I'm not sure if I got it today. And so you want to be in a position where they light up and that comes from a few different um, sources. A, you're really confident in your training that like you've prepared yourself so you can do it. But the way that I've always sort of counted on having the best kick in a race is I, I like to pride myself in running the shortest possible distance through the whole race. What do I mean by that? Well, the track is around an oval and every time that you run wide of the rail on the bends, you're costing yourself about two meters per bend if you're out in lane two or lane three. But if you run on the rail the whole way, you can't move into position. So it's about selectively choosing, um, a str strategizing when you like use up elements of energy to get into the ideal position. And um, I like to consider myself as one of the more um, conservative races so that I know I've used up the least amount of energy when the kick um, takes place. Sometimes that costs me for positioning, but I always know that I'm going to have the most energy left for a kick if I'm in place. And fortunately, at an Olympic Games, when the, the lights are brightest and everyone's eyes are on, on that, those races, it, it gets to some a high percentage of the athletes and they panic and they think they have to be in the perfect position all the time and they use up way too much energy early on in the race. They're not calm and cool and collected. And um, that's when I've been able to not kick for the win, but kick into a position for a medal. Um, so yeah, I've been proud of that, but ultimately you got to have the fitness and the training for it. So my coach is a huge proponent of hill sprints that if you can sprint up a hill, then at the end of a race, when your legs are tired, then you're able to sprint on the flat ground um, and drive your knees and push from the glutes and all that sort of stuff. So um, hills are what pay the bills, I suppose. So thank you for talking through all that. That, that was awesome stuff. 
I, I want to leave with one question here. This is from Chris at Cheney21 on Twitter. He wants to know, Nick, he wants to know what your top five favorite Pistons of all time are. And so I'm really interested to see what you have for us. I don't know if this is taking you off guard or not. Um, so you may have to talk through it here a little bit, or you may have them ready to, to, to go. Um, but top five favorite Pistons of all time. So I'm not caught off guard. I, um, I prepared for this and automatically Chauncey's always number one. Like I, I came to Michigan in 2002. So I, I, I was welcomed into the um, going to work piston. So, and then when we traded for Sheed, like I loved Sheed. Maybe at the time I loved Sheed more, but like now, like in retrospect, like Billups is, was the cornerstone of our team. And um, so I've I've tried to get my wife to let us name our child Chauncey for the first two kids. Maybe if we have any more, I might succeed in that. <laughs> um, yeah, and then Sheed will be second. I love the ball. Don't lie. Like that's, that's going to live on forever. Um, then the, the hard one for me was coming up with the other three. I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to put Ben reportation on there. Cause I've already got two from the championship team. Um, I started by thinking of Will Bynum. Okay. Um, just, I loved me when, when the Pistons were terrible, like it's nice to have a spark plug that gives you something exciting to watch. And yeah, I, I love rooting for the guys that that come out of the G League or whatever it was back then, the development league. And, and Will Bynum was nice. Um, he was five foot eight as well, or something like that. And then my son and I were big fans of Ish Smith, okay. similar type of reason. But he he brought a spark off the bench, and he made the most with with not a lot of um, height attributes. So maybe I'm putting myself on the court thinking of of how he plays. But um, you know, I had to bump Cunningham up to third. Um, now that he's he's he is a piston now. He hasn't even finished his first year, so I'd go Chauncey, Sheed, Cade, Bynum, and Ish Smith. I love it. I love. My one caveat is that Blake's first year with the Pistons, I loved Blake. Okay, I was going to ask. I was waiting for you to bring up Blake and then see the comments blow up um, on this. But, uh, you know, I wasn't here for this, you know, for the Blake. I was only here for two months or whatever it was of Blake. You know, I've only been around the Pistons for, you know, 13 months or so now. But it sounds like I was a casual NBA fan when he was playing for the Pistons. It sounds like that, you know, that one year was really, really a really good year of Blake Griffin for the Detroit Pistons. Yeah, it was so much fun. And we had had no hope for such a long time. And then he came out guns blazing. He scored 50 against Joel Embiid's 76ers. And he got the winning play at the end of the game that Casey drew up. And and he just sacrificed his body for the team. And it was nice to go to the playoffs as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't harbor any ill will towards his approach. And he was very professional with the Pistons. Um, but, yeah, he, it's, he seems like a an enemy now when he plays for the Nets, the way that he carries himself, but that's, that's fine. Yeah, no doubt, man, Nick, I wish we had more time. I wish we could have got into Sheeter Sham, but we would definitely love to have you back. There's plenty more. We can just talk Pistons. I have tons of questions about running, but we could, we could do a whole episode of Pistons with you too, whatever you'd want to do. And we'll definitely do some Sheeter Sham, especially since you had Sheed number two on your list, but thank you for joining us. Definitely would love to have you back. But right now, let everybody know where they can find you on Twitter. I know you've been tweeting about the Pistons, um, you know, where they can find that and everything else that you're doing. Yeah, if they just type in my name, Nick Willis, that should show up on the different social media channels. But yeah, you don't need to find me. I 
I just have some hot takes, but it's nice to have other people in the Pistons world because all of those around me, they're just college basketball fans. So it's nice on Twitter. I've got a community to be a part of. As always, I want to thank Wes Davenport for everything he does for Motor City Hoops. The value he brings cannot be measured, and I cannot thank him enough. Along with him, I cannot thank all of our listeners, followers, subscribers, and supporters enough either. I appreciate all of you so much and continue to encourage you to reach out anytime you have thoughts, opinions, takes, suggestions, or any other interaction. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and drop a comment or follow us on Twitter at Motor City Hoops and send a DM. The podcast will be back tonight if you're listening Tuesday morning after the Pistons play the Nuggets with an instant recap episode. And then next week we'll be joined by Mark Schindler, NBA writer for Basketball News and 137 PM and podcaster for Tag the Roll and Indy Cornrows to all things Pistons, NBA, and some NBA draft. Thank you. Go Pistons. And we'll talk to you soon. Pistons need a three. They have to cover three seconds to do it.